Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another SACPA session on this uh, very cold morning. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we are very happy and fortunate to have Shannon Frank, uh, from the Old Man uh, River Watershed um, on the topic of coal mining in the Old Man River Watershed. What is happening and what are the long-term impl implications? Um, prior to becoming the executive director of the Old, Old Man Watershed Council in 2011, Shannon Frank completed her environmental science degree at the University of Lethbridge. She previ previously worked for Multistar, as the extension coordinator supporting agricultural producers with habitat rest restoration projects and leading youth education activities. We want to thank you, Sh Shannon, for joining us today. I know um, things must have changed drastically when the news came down from Edmonton on Monday with the institution of the coal policy. And so um, I think there's a lot of uh, people online looking forward to your talk. Thank you. Thank you, Annalise, and thanks to everyone for joining us today online. Um, coal obviously is a very hot topic right now, and I hope I can shed some light on this issue for you. Um, first, I'd like to acknowledge that myself and probably most of you are participating from the traditional territory of the Blackfoot people and also home of the Métis people. The Blackfoot have stewarded this land for millennia and um, we have really good relationships with our Kainai and Pakani nations and I'm really grateful to them for welcoming me into their homes, um, sharing their wisdom with me and all the wonderful projects that we do together. The Old Man Watershed Council is a local nonprofit and registered charity based in Lethbridge. We are a collaborative forum working for watershed health through education, action, and stewardship. Uh, next slide, please. We cover the Old Man River and all of its tributaries. So it's a large area that includes the Waterton, St. Mary, Belly, Castle, Crow's Nest, Livingston, Willow, and Little Bow Rivers that all flow into the Old Man um, and also includes many municipalities as you can see on the map from about High River in the north to Grassy Lake in the east, includes Lethbridge and many others, um, the Pakani Nation, the Kainai Nation, adding up to about 200,000 people. Next slide please. We are a unique organization because we are a forum for all voices. So our board is actually made up of 19 seats in order to represent all of those voices and hear from them. So we have um, all levels of government. So we have our First Nations governments, our federal government, our provincial government, our municipalities. Um, we have a health, environment, wildlife seat. We have a seat for agriculture, irrigation, industry, academia, and also four members at large to represent the general public. Um, and what we do is we bring everyone together to discuss these tough, complex issues and to hopefully find common ground and really what practical solutions will work for our local community. The idea of watershed councils is that we're also a voice to the provincial and federal governments and we make sure that our local views are heard. And we're actually one of 11 watershed councils across Alberta and we cover the Old Man watershed. Next slide, please. Um, so with any issue, we generally don't advocate for either side. We're not a lobby group, but we are a forum. Um, and because we are sharing all voices, um, we can't take sides or we, we won't be a trusted forum. So what we, we can do, though, is we share a lot of views on all sides and all, of course the science is critical to our decision making. 
Um, so on this coal issue, we recognize that there are strong views. Um, we've certainly seen that in the news and on social media. Um, we acknowledge that there would be economic benefits, um, but my focus today is on the watershed. Um, there are other experts with information about um, economics or other topics like health. Um, but we're speaking as a watershed council for our our residents, um, both wild and domesticated. Um, we are a science-based organization, so we do want to see science-based decisions. And we'd like to see broad community support. What we do is we build consensus. Um, so we've been providing scientific information and stakeholder views to regulators for years on this topic. I think believe since 2013. Um, we Most recently, in um, September, we participated in the public hearings for the Grassy Mountain Coal Project and submitted our final statement. And then in October, we gave an oral presentation to the panel. Um, we've been sharing information publicly with municipalities, First Nations, agriculture and industry folks, so they can make informed decisions and respond on their own. Um, our recommendations also have been made to address the concerns of our local community. Um, for example, we've been recommending that we want to see uh, more proven selenium treatment technologies that will work for the long term before approvals are considered. We'll get it more into that soon. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so I'll start with just a quick overview of what exactly is happening. And it's quite complex. So um, bear with me and I'll be happy to answer your questions at the end. So in the Old Man Watershed, um, there's basically two coal mines that have submitted um, applications to regulators that are uh, closer to getting a decision to whether or not they will be able to mine or not, um, that being the Grassy and Tent Mountain mines. And then there are two other companies that are still in the exploration phase. They haven't submitted any of their applications yet that would allow them to actually mine. Um, and those are the um, Atrium and Cabin Ridge companies, and they're probably at least two, maybe three years away from applying. Um, so they're going to be exploring for the next couple years, um, then they do have approval for that. So how does the provincial government decide what to allow and what not to allow? Next slide. Um, the so the Alberta Energy Regulator makes most of the decisions about exploration, um, what, what allowing holes to be drilled, test pits to be dug, um, temporary water licenses, building roads on public land and accessing public land. The federal government basically only gets involved near the end of the process if a mine is above a certain size. And the 1976 coal development policy was created by the Peter Lougheed government to direct where and how coal mining could happen. And this is really what's been guiding um, governments for many years. The policy divided up land into four categories, as you can see on the map. Um, category one being the most important lands where no ex coal exploration could occur. Category two is also important sensitive lands for wildlife and water where coal was not normally considered, but companies could ask for an exemption or a reclassification of land. And categories three and four were more open and, and did allow for coal exploration and development. Um, but all categories do require protection for the environment. It was not like a free for all or a free pass for companies to do whatever they wanted. The policy was very clear that it expected, I know, strong environmental regulations. Um, the government rescinded this policy effective June 1st, as I'm sure you've heard, um, saying it was obsolete, that it had been replaced by land use planning and other environmental protections. Um, the Coal Association of Canada uh, lobbied for this policy to be rescinded to give their industry more assurance that their investments would pay off. Um, and then, so then after rescindment, of the policy category land one land was still protected but the changes really affected category two lands where um, exploration and possibly development was now a little bit easier but it still had to be approved by regulators 
Um, there was public outcry, obviously, we've seen that, um, um, because this was done with no consultation. Um, a lot of people don't want the mountains to be mined at all, as we've heard. And because the Grassy Mountain Coal Project was starting to get in the news, and I can tell you in my 10 years at the OWC, I've never had so many phone calls, emails, and media interviews about one topic. It's been quite the, the hot topic lately. Um, so while the policy was rescinded, two coal exploration permits were actually approved by the Alberta Energy Regulator on Category 2 lands in the headwaters, one for Atrium and one for Cabin Ridge, and those are not being cancelled. The minister uh, was clear about that. Um, Atrium has been exploring since July 2009 and has three coal exploration permits, and Cabin Ridge has one permit that was granted in September 2020. Um, and then on February 8, 2021, facing huge public outcry, the government reinstated the coal policy, said they had made a mistake and would consult with Albertans on updating the policy. Um, so this new consultation is going to be rolled out in the coming weeks, and we think that's very good news. We definitely need public consultation on this topic, and we look forward to participating. And you know, everyone wants to see meaningful consultation, and uh, most of this is our public land, and so that's very important. Um, but regardless, as you can see on that map, there's quite a bit of Category 3 and 4 land in our watershed where mining could still occur. Um, next slide, please. The, so of the two projects that are closer to a decision, one being the Grassy Mountain Coal Project is on Category 4 lands in the Crow's Nest Pass, um, mostly north of Highway 3, um, where open pit mining is a permitted land use. Um, some of it's pr uh, privately owned land and there's a little bit of public land as well. Um, and an Australian company called Riversdale um, created a subsidiary company called Banga Mining for this project. On the map in the yellow-brown color labeled grassy is the first 1,500 hectares that Banga hopes to mine. 25% of that is previously disturbed by past coal mines that were not reclaimed properly. The other colored lands that you see on the map are additional coal leases that they own but are not part of the first mine application. Um, it's where they may hope to expand to in future. So currently this is being reviewed by uh, federal and provincial regulators. I mentioned the joint review panel was appointed. Public hearings were held in late 2020. And so right now the panel is writing its report which is due June 2021. And then a decision is expected in, in September at the very earliest. And that decision would be made by the Federal Minister of Environment and Climate Change. Um, as I mentioned, we participated in these hearings and voiced our concerns about water, selenium, habitat loss, um, impacts on endangered trout and other species, as well as potential impacts on municipalities, agriculture and other water users. Um, some groups are supporting the mine. Um, the elected councils of Crow's Nest Pass, uh, the town of Pincher Creek, Pecani Nation and Kainé Nation have all written letters of support. Um, but of course, like any place, it doesn't mean everyone in the whole community is for or against it. There's always some that, that support it and some that do not. Um, and we've, you know, we've heard a lot of um, folks from the First Nations in particular saying that, that they felt they were not consulted and do not agree with their elected council. So it's, it's a very contentious issue. Um, but this is the, coal, the first coal mine to undergo this joint federal-provincial review. So it will be precedent setting and if it is approved, it kind of would pave the way for other mines to be approved as well. Next slide please. Um, the second mine that is closer to a decision is the Tent Mountain Mine, owned by Montem Resources. It's also in the Crow's Nest Pass, a little further west, right along the BC border. So 1,700 hectares on Category 4 land, where open pit mining is allowed, again, with approval. Um, the land was mined in the past and then reclaimed in the 80s. Um, so because it has this previous federal approval, it does not require federal review, only provincial review. And so the Alberta Energy Regulator 
will be the one reviewing environmental plans, water licenses, reclamation plans, and would require a reclamation bond to be deposited to um, ensure future cleanup. Um, the first mine is estimated to last 14 years, um, but Montem also owns a large area of land that they call the Chinook Project. It's about 10,000 hectares of coal leases north of Crow's Nest Pass and up the Livingston Range that it would hope to expand to over time uh, would require additional review and approval. Um, and so as with any coal mine, selenium is still a concern, um, but Montem is proposing multiple layers of water treatment. So they're, they're well aware of this issue and have... Um, like three levels of treatment that they're, they're talking about, um, and then discharge to Crow's Nest Creek um, once the water is treated. Um, the One other difference with this mine is they do have their own kind of uh, old pit lake that's full of water that they would be able to access to operate the mine, so they would not need to withdraw water from nearby creeks. Um and so it's unclear when a decision would be made on this mine by the Alberta Energy Regulator, um, but I would suspect it would be after the consultations are completed because um, the government would probably get quite a bit of flack if they approved a mine in the middle of consultations. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so in addition to those two open pit coal mine applications that are close to a decision, um, there are many other crown coal rights that have been sold in our headwaters. Um, the gray on this map shows all the coal leases in our headwaters. Some are on category four land, some on category two. You can see there's quite a bit of land north of Highway 3, but also some south of Highway 3 and even next to the castle parks. Um, the land in black is about 1,800 hectares of category two land. Um, that you probably heard was sold by the government in December and then cancelled in January um, after public backlash. And um, But the government has announced that they suspended the sale of any more leases on Category 2 lands in blue, And um, but the ones that were sold while the policy was rescinded are not being cancelled. Um, so there's quite a bit of concern about these existing leases on Category 2 land because this is the headwaters, the source of our water. It's also really valuable habitat for um, endangered West Slope cutthroat trout, bull trout, grizzly bears, mountain goats, um, bighorn sheep, and many other species. And you can see the, the red um, is the streams that are critical habitat for trout. Um, and they, they do overlap quite a bit. So it is... Um, uh, a contentious issue where we could have coal mines right where we have critical habitat for trout and um, there is a federal order to protect that land. Uh, next slide please. Um, water use of course is always a hot topic in southern Alberta and people want to know where these coal mines will get their water from. Uh, and you might have heard that the government is opening up new allocations, so I'll explain what, what is really happening. Um, so first you need to remember the Old Man Watershed is a clove basin, meaning that we're, the government's not giving out any new water licenses um, for the most part. And you actually would need to purchase water from someone else who already has a license in order to get access to water. And then you have to ask the government to transfer the license um, to you. Um, and that is, has a review process as well. So that's generally how our water market works. Um, but in the 90s, the government actually created this Old Man River Basin Water Allocation Order to set aside 11,000 acre feet of water upstream of the Old Man Reservoir, primarily for irrigation with uh, 1,650 acre feet for non-irrigation use, uses. And so this was actually done to demonstrate to ranchers and farmers that lost their land to the flooding of the reservoir, that agriculture upstream of the reservoir would benefit from it and that they would get this water for irrigation. Um, so on paper, this water has been available for years and is one of the only ways people can actually get a new license, but there are these limits. Um, up till now, about 16% of the water has been allocated, um, but there's still some left that people can apply for. 
Um, of that 11,000 acre feet, 150 acre feet is available for industrial use, and Banga has applied for all of it for the Grassy Mountain Mine. Um, so the government is proposing to remove limits on the different types of use and just allow anyone to apply for a, a license from this amount, um, including coal mines. And they've been clear that this is in order to spur economic development and that their you know, focus is on economic recovery and they want to remove barriers to development. Um, so if, if this change goes ahead, um, we would estimate that around half of what is available could be um, used by coal mines, depending on how many are operating at the same time, if they were approved. Um, and the government's also proposing to set aside 2,200 acre feet for environmental flows, but it's unclear if this is enough because it really depends on where, when, and how withdrawals will occur, and what the needs of that particular creek or river are. And so we really need scientific assessments to make sure that these creeks are protected. Um, our best guideline that we have in science is to withdraw no more than 15% of a natural flow, and no withdrawals at all during extreme low flows. And so we're recommending in the meantime um, that that be followed while we can do these in-stream uh, flow needs assessments. Um, the government has done some initial consultations and said that there will be more in future, so we're just kind of staying tuned for that and we'll see how that unfolds. Um, we have given our feedback to the government initially and um, you know, there's, there's a lot to this. It's quite complicated and could have unintended consequences and so we really have to think this one through. Um, next slide, please. Um, there are there are two kind of federal and provincial plans about mining that you may not have heard about. Um, the Canadian Minerals and Metals Plan is the federal plan that pursues the vision that Canada is the leading mining nation. And so all provinces and territories, um, some indigenous groups, environmental groups, uh, labor organizations and industry actually worked with the government to develop this plan. Um, and it is supposed to be based on socially, economically and environmentally sustainable and pros prosperous mining industry underpinned by political and community consensus. That's what the plan states. Um, and Alberta is also working on its own mineral mining strategy. And um, this is a draft document that has not been released yet, but um, we were able to uh, review it and send in our feedback. So we're, we're waiting to see where that one goes as well. Next slide, please. Uh, for projects over a certain side, as I mentioned, there is federal uh, review. Usually they have this joint panel review similar to the Grassy Mountain process, and there is a lot of opportunities for public input there. Um, and then provincially, there's also a lot of opportunities to provide input, um, but it is a little trickier provincially because you usually only have 30 days and you also have to prove that you're directly affected. And so there's all these acts um, that, you know, have, uh, coal companies have to apply to get permission um, to do different things um, and so if you really have to stay on top of it there's, it's quite difficult and um, it's, it's quite the process to get involved in um, but there are some other ways you could give feedback through elected representatives or, or just participating in community organizations that know how to navigate this process. Uh, next slide please. So I know there's a lot going on. It's very confusing. Um, and so if your head is spinning by now, don't worry, you're not alone. Uh, I'm just going to touch on a few of the long-term impacts now. Um, next slide, please. So obviously this is a critical headwaters area. It's the source of our water. It's uh, you know important for wildlife and um, fish and is very um, important to us as um, you know, local residents, we will like to spend time there, um, actually provides about 90% of our water, but it is a busy landscape and um, is already, you know, facing 
quite a few challenges with the many land uses that are already happening there. So adding coal mines would add another type of pressure. Uh, next slide, please. Um, selenium, I know, is a lot of people's big concern. Water quality, of course, is very important. Um, and so there's basically um, three different concentrations of selenium that really matter. Um, there, and so I'm going to just touch on those. So in, in water, um, selenium is, is not dangerous at low concentrations, but as it increases, it can be. So um, for the aquatic environment, we, we don't like to see more than two micrograms per liter. Um, and we, we know that the baseline um, that's already in the ecosystem is around uh, 0.5. Um, so, you know, the, it's not a big jump from 0.5 to 2. Um, and that is a concern for fish. Um, the limit for agricultural use is 20 micrograms per liter, and the limit for human drinking water is 50 micrograms per liter. Um, so obviously fish are affected first, um, and, and there has been some monitoring done. Um, so we do know, you know what some of the baselines are in the headwaters, and we would be able to see if they're increasing. Um, but the big question is, can it be removed? Um, and the answer is a bit complicated. So yes, it can be removed. There are various treatment processes available and, um, you know, coal mines like Tech in the Elk Valley are testing those. But the, the big question is, will they work for a long time or will, they, will the effectiveness of the treatment um, decline over time? Because Tech's a big leader in this area. They have been... Um, investing hundreds of millions of dollars and they have about two years of research showing that their treatment processes are working but two years just you know isn't the super long time and that's why there's concern is that you know we we want this to be rock solid we don't want um, to have any risk that this could could um, contaminate our water over time if it becomes less effective in year three and less effective in year four, for example. Um, so there's still a lot of research underway and these questions remain, you know, will it work at a larger scale? They have to still scale up their field tests. Will it work for the long term? Will it be consistent? Because um, you say you can remove, um, you know, 95% of the selenium but um, is that consistent? Can we always do that or does it fluctuate? So that's why this is a complicated issue. Um, next slide, please. Um, the agriculture and irrigation industry, of course, are quite concerned um, because we do have a large portion of the irrigated land here in the Old Man watershed. This is a very important industry, near billion dollars, um, we can estimate. And so we don't want to see any water contamination impacting our agricultural economy. Um, next slide, please. For groundwater as well, um, is we know that there's very limited groundwater data. We've been making recommendations for how um, monitoring needs to be improved for groundwater so that we can make better decisions. And um, so far we know that any contamination of groundwater would likely reach the river because it does flow that direction and the two are highly connected. Uh, next slide, please. For water quantity, of course, I, I mentioned this as earlier. Um, and this, this is a big issue because downstream of the headwaters is the prairies and is highly dependent on this mountain area um, and without it you know it's a very dry area and so you know we are concerned about the impacts of withdrawing water from these small sensitive creeks we need to make sure those um, in-stream flow needs assessments are done um, so that we can mitigate any impacts if these coal mines go ahead um, and there's um, also, the uncertainty of climate change, of course, adding extra risk. Um, so this is a big, big issue as well. Next slide, please. Uh, linear features. We talk about this quite a bit at the OWC. Um, we have targets to reduce linear features. You can see on the map on the left, all those brown lines are roads, trails, pipelines, you name it. And they all fragment the landscape and they add up. 
And so um, what we'd like to see is negligible or low density, as you can see on the right, but we actually have mostly moderate and high density. So we want to bring those down. And again, coal mines just add another um, type of fragmentation on top of what's already there. Next slide, please. Um, soil and erosion, of course, is a big issue in a steep mountainous area where you're moving around millions of tons of soil and rock. Um, so we do want to make sure that, you know, any management ponds for sediment need to be large enough to withstand, withstand these huge um, runoff events. And, you know, we've heard of examples of where entire sedimentation ponds were blown out and ran off into creeks. So we, we need to make sure that is not happening. Um, next slide, please. Uh, West Slope cutthroat trout, of course, are a big topic. And this map is pretty telling. It shows in orange that there's only three watersheds left with low adult densities. All the other land is very low or functionally extirpated. So this this poor fish is you know not doing well. Um, and the Grassy Mountain Mine is actually located right in that bottom orange color. The, that's Gold Creek watershed. And um, this, it's quite contentious saying, look, how can... Um, this critical habitat be destroyed when there's actually a federal government order saying that it can't be. So that was one of the big debates at the hearings and um, we're not sure how that's going to be dealt with. Um, possibly, I, th I think the grassy was, was um, suggesting they could offset the habitat somewhere else. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But um, there's probably going to be some lawsuits around this one because there is a, a Species at Risk Act uh, federal habitat order for that protects this habitat. Um, next slide, please. Again, there's all sorts of biodiversity. So um, all, of, all of these um, different species, not just the trout, there's endangered whitebark pine, limber pine, there's so much going on that um, you know, could be impacted by this. But um, we know there's quite contentious debates about this. So, so uh, we know from the environmental impact assessment for grassy, they're very clear about you know, how much land would be, would be lost, how many, how many wetlands, how many hectares of grasslands. It's all laid out there. Um, it's it's you know, not hidden. So we, we know what, what the impacts would be, what the losses would be. Um, and also a loss for indigenous peoples who, you know, use these plants for medicines and ceremonies and even food. Um, so there's definitely some concern here about the habitat loss is a big one. Um, next slide, please. So just kind of summing up here for all of these impacts, these long-term impacts, these ongoing kind of ever-increasing demands that we place on our land and water. Um, this area already has a lot of serious threats, um, including climate change, declining biodiversity, uh, whirling disease, um, you know, mountain pine beetle. It's, it's a high-pressure situation. And so coal mines would add kind of another um, pressure to the ecosystems. And there could be you know, up to four mines over time if they were all approved. So that would be a big change for the area and, you know, could have um, bigger impacts. So what we're asking for is a cumulative effects assessment so we can really understand this. Um, um, but I'll, I'll wrap up there and uh, like to hear your questions and um, be really happy to have a discussion with you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Shannon, for your talk. I know that um, half an hour, this topic really can't be covered in half an hour. Okay. So we have quite a few questions, so I'll jump right in. Um, okay. Steve P. Other coal rights around Lethbridge. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think there are maybe one or two kind of 
historic ones, but there's no uh, like active exploration um, that I'm aware of. Um, it's it's all in the mountains. Okay, um, Ian Hurdle, if the mines had to go to underground operations, how would this affect water usage, selenium output, and dust production? Oh, um, well, I, there hasn't been any companies suggesting that, that they would be able to use underground methods. They're all looking for open pit. Um, so I, I, I think that an, an underground mine is um, just not likely, not feasible, um, and probably a lot more expensive. So I, I certainly haven't seen any company suggesting that would be an option. It certainly would have less impact um, on the surface of the land, so that you know would be helpful in terms of environmental impact um, and probably um, some dust as well. But it's just not in the cards right now. Our next question comes from Bavmundo. What happens to fish if the level of two ug is reached? Or UG. Yeah, so two micrograms per liter is that kind of safe limit for fish. Um, and what happens is they have troubles reproducing, and they get the they can be uh, born with mutations. Um, some of the photos that you've probably seen were where they have missing um, uh, some of their gills, and they look funny. So um, it's not pretty that, and it, you know it can actually see fish populations collapse. Um, there's been studies showing um, downstream of the tech mines, you know, they found that their fish populations had collapsed um, in certain areas. And up north, there's studies showing that um, the fish had high levels of selenium in their tissues and in their organs. Right. Our next question comes, well, it's more a comment, but I'm sure you could uh, maybe uh, speak to it uh, from Barbara Quinn. Ask Sparwood in BC if you want to know how well tax filtration system the company is now shipping in water to Sparwood because of the high levels of selenium found in the drinking water. So... In the Elk Valley, really what happened was um, there was no treatment for many years. Um, so, you know, the levels started to accumulate over time um, because there was no treatment at all um, or very little um, for selenium. Um, and so, um, you know, it would be, it'd be a lot different if there was treatment right from the beginning. Um, we, you know, hopefully wouldn't have those... Um, background levels building up but still there is a, a big concern here that you know are these treatments going to be effective for the long term um, and I, I know in Sparwood they did have one well that was contaminated with selenium and so they closed it and they uh, re-dug a new one um, and tech paid for that um, but I and I know there are, are some private wells on acreages that were contaminated as well and uh, maybe that's where the water is being chucked in. I'm not 100% um, sure, but that would be my guess. Um, but yeah, it, it's certainly a very serious issue. It's a big concern and we need, you know, need to have answers and we need to know um, that this is not going to happen here. You know, if this even goes ahead, like none of these companies have approval to build a mine. So, you know, we'll see if that's um, going to happen or not. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Thanks very much, Shannon, for addressing the issue. Lethbridge City Council have voiced concerns. Are you aware whether or not proce processors like Cavendish and McCain have voiced concerns about selenium? Um, as far as I know, they haven't said anything officially, no. Um, but I know that there are... Um, agricultural groups that are gathering information they're trying to figure out what this could mean for them and we're providing them with information and helping them understand the potential impacts and um, they could be coming out 
you know, in future with a position. I certainly would, you know, expect that they would participate in the consultations that have been announced. I think they will be, you know, very active in that. Um, and I know they're paying attention to this, then, you know, it'll be up to them if they decide to, to come out publicly with a statement. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Are there other possible contaminants in addition to selenium? Yes, absolutely. Um, the Just reading the grassy environmental impact assessment actually states that there are um, I believe it was six water quality variables that could be exceeded during the 24-year life of the, that coal mine. Um, so they're they're saying right up front, you know, there could be some you know water quality um, exceedances here um, occasionally, um, but that they you know will do their best to mitigate those. Um, and so those are things like um, nitrates is one and. Um, you know, that's another one that tech has been working on reducing nitrates and it's like the selenium and the nitrates are generally reduced together, but sometimes they're not and we can see high levels of, of nitrates and phosphates um, that actually get worse when you reduce the selenium. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, we want to make sure we have this right and we we know how this is going to work um, other heavy metals as well there are a couple of um, groundwater monitoring wells in the crow's nest pass like historic ones that um, do exceed guidelines for heavy metals um, from past mines um, um, but they're just monitoring wells they're not drinking wells um, but yeah there's absolutely a, a whole slew of them so um, we need to make sure that they're all treated. Um, selenium just kind of raises to the top because it's been so persistent and it's been so difficult for um, companies to treat, um, but there's certainly several more. Our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. How does one, and then in brackets, Banga Grassy Mountain, end of bracket, relocate a fish habitat to offset damages to the natural habitat? Um, so basically they're suggesting that they would uh, restore habitat on another creek. So they're saying, you know, we're gonna have to um, um, take off part of Gold Creek and like habitat will be lost on Gold Creek over here, but we're gonna restore the same amount of habitat over there on another creek. And so um, it is, it is, you know, questionable whether that other creek is as good of a habitat because, you know, we know Gold Creek is one of three that still has um, low adult densities of fish, and um, most of the others are extirpated. So, you know, that that's a very good question that was hotly debated at the hearing. Um, but that's the idea is that you would restore habitat somewhere else. Um, but again, there's concern that that habitat might not be as high quality. Right. Um, Leona, I noticed that you have several questions. I'll come back. Anybody who's asking more than one question, I will come back to your question at the end of the presentation if we have a time left over. Um, so, um, having said that, Steve P. does thank you very much for your talk and will your slides be available to share after this presentation? So maybe you can let me know that, Shannon, afterwards and I can provide more clarity. Our next sure, question, yeah. Okay. Our next question comes from uh, Peter Trommelin. Any idea why the Pakani chief and council support Grassi? Uh, well, I believe in their written statements, they said that they, you know, feel that the economic benefits would be good for their community, that it would help create some jobs for members of the community, um, and um, that they felt, because this was Category 4 land, um, where, you know, 25% of, of the grassy land was previously mined, is disturbed and not reclaimed, um, they felt that that was kind of like a lower risk area where um, 
um, you know, it's not as sensitive as this category two lens. Um, so that's, that's what um, the written statement says. And you can um, find those online if you'd like to read those for yourself. Our next question comes from a person that's using a different um, a, a screen name. So, um, how close is the government to changing the water use regulations? Um, I don't really know. Like they have, all they said is that they're going to be doing more consultation in future, and like that will be rolled out over time. But but they did say, you know, it would be lengthy and robust and you know, they want to get it right. So, um, you know, we're expecting it will be part of that, the part of the coal consultation. Um, but if it was done separately, you know, we would still be wanting the same um, kind of robust consultation. But there's no timeline on that. Um, and there, it hasn't even been like an official announcement. They've just been doing initial consultations with a few organizations. Um, you know, uh, the Old Man Watershed Council was one, the, a few municipalities um, upstream of the reservoir and First Nations were the kind of initial groups that were consulted and we're just waiting to see when there will be more consultation. Our next question comes from Daphne Serratus. What level of government could impose a moratorium on exploration by the coal companies? Um, so the provincial government um, has the authority to do that. And they, they sort of did that on some land. So the Category 2 land they announced uh, a couple days ago, there will be no more... Um, uh, licenses sold on Category 2 land, but they did not cancel the ones that were already sold before that announcement. Um, so they sort of partially did that on some land, but not on other land. And they have the, the authority to do that. Our next question comes from... Uh, Barry Olson, in addition, future public consultations, how can individuals best express their concern? Great question. Um, so I think there's, you know, there is quite a few avenues, starting with elected officials is, is really important. Um, the coal mine approvals, when there's when there's federal involvement, it's up to the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, which is Jonathan Wilkinson. Um, so writing him is, is uh, Nick, he's, he's the one making the decision. Um, and then provincially, it's the Minister of Energy, uh, Sonia Savage. Um, so you could write to her and share your views. Um, also, you know, it doesn't hurt to CC your municipal council, your MLA and your MP. When you're, um, if you're sending an email, you can get involved that way. Uh, um, we can get involved in organizations that are, um, you know, sending feedback in, like the OWC. We're sending in in feedback and letters, and we are often asked to comment on policies. Um, and you can share information with your friends and family. Just help people understand what's happening. Give them information so they can make their own decision, an informed decision, um, and, I, and I would say just make sure you're watching the consultation processes, um, especially this new, you know, updated coal policy that was announced the other day. That's going to be really important that people participate in that so that, you know, hopefully we have um, more of a community consensus on what we want to see along the eastern slopes of Alberta. Because um, this isn't just about, you know, a couple coal mines in the south. This is about the whole eastern slopes of Alberta. Um, so it's, you know, incumbent on all of us to participate in that. Excellent. Um, our next question comes from Laura Schultz. Would you be able to comment on whether the AB Energy Regulator, the AER, <coughs> has established process and procedure that all applicants 
must follow and if such procedures are available to the public. Yeah, yeah, no, they do. There, There's definitely established procedures um, and there is lots of information on the AER website. Um, um, but I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Like, it's complicated and it's hard to navigate and it's not easy for, you know, most people. Like, I've been really struggling to figure out all of the different search functions that you have to do. And, you know, if you don't use the exact right word, um, then nothing comes up. It, it's quite complicated, but there certainly is a lot of information. Like, um, as I said... And like a, a provincially, um, there's a lot of of acts that need permits: the Water Act, the Environmental Protection and Enhancement Act, the Public Lands Act. Um, all require different reviews and different approvals. Um, and like I mentioned, um, people can comment, but they generally only have 30 days, sometimes less. You know, we saw in the news some were given same day approval. Um, we didn't really allow time for anyone to comment. Um, we also know that you have to kind of show that you're directly affected, which means you have to live, you know, next door to a, a place, basically. Um, so it is a little bit more difficult provincially. Um, but federally, when they do a joint review panel and there's hearings, it's there's a lot more opportunities for kind of general public input. They they will open up comment periods, um, you know, fairly frequently, and they're a little more um, open about who can participate. Um, the the federal government actually just recently changed those rules. They used to be more strict, and they got a lot of flack for that. And so they actually opened it up so that now there's a little bit more um, groups that are allowed to participate. Um, our next question comes from Terry Shillington. What is Whirling's disease? Um, so Whirling disease is just a, a disease in fish that it's called Whirling because it makes them kind of spin around and they get sick and, and die. And so we don't want, um, like my point with the Whirling disease was just that there's already all of these other pressures on fish and on the landscape and on the ecosystem and that um, you know adding another type of land use to an already busy landscape is adding a little bit more pressure and more pressure and we're always adding you know more demands and on our water supply and on, on the land and so we just need to be careful that um, you know, the environment is not unbreakable. It does have a, a carrying capacity that, um, you know, if you go above it, you'll start seeing even more species um, dying out. You'll see water quality decline, etc. cetera. Um, so we just want to make sure that um, any pressures um, don't go too far and then we start losing things that are precious to us. Um, Steve Weissman has a follow-up comment to, uh, so to add to Shannon's answer on other chemicals, there are metals such as copper, vanadium, and arsenic, uh, and then in brackets, and others, as well as organics, polycyclic, aromatic hydrocarbons, uh, and not sure of levels in this coal. Yeah, that's right. There are a, like a long list of, of potential um, water contaminants and that's why, you know, the water treatment needs to be rock solid um, if these mines were ever approved. So, um, no, I, I, I don't want to get into the polyaromatic hydrocarbons. I'm not an expert in that, but um, there is a lot of information online. There's quite a few studies um, if you Google like um, coal mine water impacts or, you know, um, water treatments for coal mines, things like that. There are studies that come up and, and there's even a few in Alberta. Um, so there's lots of information out there if you're interested. Next question comes from uh, James Byrne. There are high ACE levels 
A, capital A, small letter S. So I'm going to call it A's. There's a high level of A's levels on gold and black Blairmore, CKS. As contamination was also the reason for shutdowns on the Gold Creek water system serving Frank, Alberta, is A's a bigger threat than selenium? Well, um, I mean, it, it, it depends on what you're looking at, right? Like if you're looking short term, then um, just for like one coal mine, you know, there's there could maybe be short-term impacts that could be dealt with easier. But then on the long-term, if there's like four coal mines, then that really changes the picture. Um, and like, I, I don't know exactly the differences between um, how hard it is to treat arsenic versus um, selenium. My understanding from what I've read is that, um, you know, you can you can treat both, you know it, it. But there's a difference between what's possible in a lab or in a field site or in a trial versus like a fully operating coal mine after 20 years, right? And that's where the concern comes in: is is it going to be consistently um, meeting these standards and not um, not going over these thresholds that are unsafe? And so. Um, you know, it just depends on um, knowing that we have to have this research and this um, assurance before we move ahead. That's what we've been asking for. It's, if we don't have these assurances now, you know, when are we going to get them? Um, I know the um, like part of the city's the city of Lethbridge input was, you know, if if there becomes a problem, will the mines be shut down? And, um, you know, I've, I've heard government staff, our government officials say, um, yes, maybe they would be shut down. Like, you know, maybe we could give you that assurance. Um, but I've also heard people say, well, that's very unlikely. You know, once they get operating, it's pretty, very rarely are, are these operations shut down. So, um yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't have an exact answer for that, but I, I would say both are probably possible in theory. It's just, you know, is it going to work long term? Our next question comes from Trevor Page. Do you believe the AER is too industry biased and environmental concerns are not taken seriously? Well, the AER... Um, has a very specific role. Um, you know, they they are um, there to review and approve um, and oversee um, energy development. But you know, th like that's a tough question because um, that's it's complex. So the the AER is funded by industry. They have um, you know a mandate to kind of support development but it's supposed to be to a high standard um, you know there's supposed to be a lot of oversight um, and you know on paper they're, they're they like reading the coal exploration permits for example they're very long they have a lot of um, requirements that they have to meet you know they can't operate during this time of year they have to leave buffer zones of, of around creeks they have to leave buffer zones around nests um, for example, so there, so there looks like a lot of regulation, um, but then I start wondering, and others have asked, you know, does the, who's in, actually inspecting that and enforcing that? And I think that's where we've seen, um, you know, critiques come in from the Auditor General, for example, saying that um, there's not enough actual enforcement. And so that, you know, what exists on paper um, is, is maybe not always happening in reality and that we need to increase the capacity of these kind of field inspections, for example, to make sure that what's required is, is actually happening. Um, so that's kind of the, some of the critiques that I've seen. Um, and 
I think it, you know, when these hot topics come up like coal, that's when people start asking questions and looking at this. Um, but often the environmental issues are not top of mind and they don't get our, our you know, undivided attention. And, you know, when these hot topics fade away, things um, can slip by. So um, it's I think it's very good that people are paying attention now and that they want to know <clears throat> that they're pushing, excuse me, <clears throat> for you know strong regulations um, because that helps kind of balance out and um, hopefully we'll see okay. the, the government take on you know reassure Albertans that that is happening okay um, Jane Allen how can we change the composition of the AER to include environmental stakeholders in conjunction with industry Um, so again, that's complicated because there are a, um, a, like a bunch of processes that already exist. So, um, <clears throat> for example, um, app some applications are sent to um, biologists, um, you know, ecologists, experts to review and provide their input. Um, for example, uh, people can request. Um, that they be part of the process. You can um, submit comments. Um, but again, it gets down to, you know, all of this, all of these opportunities for input, all of this information that's sent in, um, then what happens with it? Is it, um, are they required to listen to it? Or is it just considered? Um, is it, does it become a condition of an operating permit or is it just something that a company has to consider in its operations? Um, and so that's where it gets tricky. And I think, um, like I mentioned earlier, it would be good and I think it would reassure Albertans if we had, um, if it was easier for the public and for groups to participate, like it is a little bit easier federally, um, because like we've seen in the news, some of these applications were approved, you know, within a day or two or three, and um, you know, people didn't really have a chance to provide a statement. And so I think there are certainly improvements that can be made, and things need would need to be. Um, very, very clear that what has to be considered and what has to be absolutely followed and will be enforced. Our next question comes from Tunnel Crawler. Um, reinstating Leona Jacobs' question, which is too important to ignore. Um, we're only reading out first questions and Leona has a, had a several questions so I don't think we'll have time to go back to do people's second and third questions but anyway so this person is re-asking Leona's second question can you comment on the eff efficacy of a promised post-mine reclamation yeah so um, one of so you have to read the environmental impact assessment for each mine to really understand what they're promising they would do um, and you know, where improvements could be made. Um, so for example, with the Grassy Mountain Mine, they had submitted a kind of a draft reclamation plan um, that people could review and provide feedback on. And um, one of the things that came out in the hearings um, that quite a few people commented on, excuse me, was that they wanted to see a much more detailed uh, reclamation plan and that, you know, there wasn't a lot of confidence that that was um, absolutely detailed and complete. Um, but the companies said, well, that's something we do later once we have approval. So there's kind of this... Um, push and pull where you know we want to see everything up front we want it to be perfect we want it to be done so we can we can review it um, but they're the companies don't want to do all this work unless they have approval 
and so um, it gets tricky. But the Grassy Mountain Reclamation Plan, for example, you know, there were lots of recommendations made how it needs to be improved, um, what more it needs to include. And then I'm guessing people are wondering about the, the bonds for reclamation to make sure um, that the cleanup is done and that there's money for that and it doesn't fall on taxpayers. And that's a very good point. We've certainly seen that happen time and again where there's not enough reclamation bond put up front, not enough money collected, and then um, mines go bankrupt um, and then there's the taxpayers are on the hook for cleanup. So, you know, we we and many others have been pushing that, you know, they need to um, reevaluate that process, collect more money up front, make sure they're collecting enough and that we won't be left on the hook. Um, so, you know, again, that, that's up to the government to decide. Shannon, um, I know we're already five minutes over, but we have one last question. Is it, uh, do you have time for that? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Okay, our last question is from Mervyn Cole. It's my understanding that huge volumes of water will be required in the mining process. Will this water be treated for downstream use or simply dumped into rivers causing widespread contamination? Um, so, yeah, it would certainly, you know, if these mines are approved, it, it does have to be treated. Um, and I spoke uh, about how um, you know, the, those treatment processes are have been tested by tech for about two years and they are working um, but there is concern about will they work for the long term will they be able to consistently treat the water to that high standard um, for all of the, the concerns not just selenium um, so yes it, it, it would be treated um, but there are still some concerns there okay um Thank you very much. That's all our questions. We have quite a few thank yous um, for lots of very clear information. Thank you for uh, advocating for the OWC and our water. Uh, Connor Peterson, many thanks. Uh, Shannon for doing a great job of representing the OWC and its important mandate. So, um, and I want to thank you on behalf of SACPA. Um, before we wrap up this session, do you have a take home message for our viewers? Yes, I think um, this is a very complicated topic and, you know, I can't cover everything in half an hour. So I would just encourage people to check out our blog. We have a lot of information on there. Um, send me an email. Give me a call. I'd be happy to keep answering questions. I've been getting a lot of questions from uh, citizens and on groups and I've been answering them all. Um, so don't like hesitate to reach out. Follow us on social media. Um, sign up as a member. We have free memberships and then you'll get all the latest news and information um, emailed to you in our newsletter. Um, so just kind of keep in touch and then we'll keep providing the um, latest information because things keep changing um, quite rapidly. There's a lot going on. So, um, you know, who knows what we, uh, we might need to talk about tomorrow. Wonderful. Thanks very much. And um, I hope that folks will join us again next week, Thursday, where we have the leader of the of official opposition in Alberta, Rachel Notley, MLA Rachel Notley. And this is a virtual conversation with Rachel Notley. So we hope that you will join us for that uh, next Thursday at 10 a.m. And um, we'll see you then. Thank you, folks. <laughs>